Good evening and welcome to the Spirit and Life Bible Study. My name is Jonathan. Our reader is Cara tonight. And we're talking about John, the Apostle John. Our title is that John symbolizes good works. We've been doing a series on Peter, James, and John. And Peter uh, symbolizes faith. James symbolizes charity. And we'll be talking about the meaning of John tonight. Uh, it's interesting with these biblical stories... I know it may be difficult to accept the idea that these figures, in addition to being true, real, flesh and blood historical figures, have some kind of symbolic meaning. But the idea of a symbolic meaning really helps us understand strange stories like one disciple rushing ahead of another but then not going in the tomb and then the other one goes in first, then the other one goes, you know, why would we need these little details if there was no meaning to the people, you know, who are doing these things. And so those are the kind of stories that we'll be looking at tonight. And could you join me in an opening prayer, good friends? Our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, you are the one God of heaven and earth. You are the Word made flesh. Thank you, Lord, for bringing us together in your name. We pray for a sense of your presence among us and a sense of your presence as we look in the pages of your Word. Amen. Amen. Thank you all, friends. Always miss it when we don't have Bible study and sending out love to those of you watching online and getting the audio and on the phone and so on. Uh, why don't I say who we are here in case any of you are joining us for the first time. Spirit and Life Bible Study looks at the Bible through a Swedenborgian lens, meaning in alignment with the teachings of Emanuel Swedenborg, born 1688, died 1772. The name Spirit and Life comes from Jesus himself, who says that his words are spirit and they are life, John 6.63. Spirit, which we take to mean that his words have a spiritual and heavenly meaning and purpose, and life meaning that his words are alive and aim to bring us to life by teaching us how we are to live if we wish to become spiritual and heavenly. And since Jesus is the word made flesh, as we read in John 1.14, what he says of his words applies, we believe, to all the words of the Bible. They all teach who he is and how we can get from hell to heaven. Thank you very much for joining us. And let's look at the Apostle John. Um, it, with, with some of these things that, the, that Swedenborg presents, Swedenborg says very clearly that Peter means faith, James means charity, and John means the works of charity or good works. And we'll talk a little bit about what those are. Um, uh, it's, it's hard to sort of demonstrate. There's not sort of a smoking gun passage that would say, oh, clearly that's what he means. Uh, but the way that I would argue it is that for one thing, it's curious, isn't it, as we talked about in previous weeks, that so many stories just involve three of the 12 disciples, Peter, James, and John, so often go off by themselves and have some special experience. And it makes sense to me that the reason that, that we're taught that way is because it's more than just those individuals. I mean, Peter had a brother. Why didn't his brother, you know, James and John were brothers, but Peter has a brother, and yet we never hear about Peter and Andrew going somewhere special with James and John. You know, why would it be those three? Why leave out one brother? I think when it comes down to the meaning, those kind of things make sense. And I want to look in particular, um, well, let's start with this. Let's go to Matthew chapter 12. We'll be mostly in the Gospel of John and beyond tonight, but uh, Matthew 12, um, verses 34 and 35, this teaching of the Lord's tells us something about 
what good works are, what, the, what that means, uh, good works. What are those? Brood of vipers? Is yes. Okay. Why not? <laughs> nice way to launch in a bracing. Brood of vipers. How can you, being evil, speak good things? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Mm. Out of the abundance of the heart. So it, your heart is where uh, your words come from. Go on. A good man out of the good treasure of his heart brings forth good things. And an evil man out of the evil treasure brings forth evil things. Yes. Now, it seems like a fairly simple statement. Uh, but when you think about it, what he's saying is that good works or good deeds, what we're talking about are actions. Uh, I think words are also included in there. They're, they're things that we actually do. Uh, and that if we have a good heart, good works are things that are done with a good heart. You could say, oh, well, a good work is anything that anyone does for any reason that benefits someone else. And that might be a definition. But the Lord's definition here is that if it's coming from an evil heart, in other words, if our motivation for doing something, and it's always hard to tell what, what we're motivated by, but if we're motivated by some self-centeredness, some greed, we're, we're being hypocritical, we're trying to put one over on somebody or something like that. Uh, as good as those actions might say, no, I'm just trying to help you, friend, you know, or something, but it's really evil and, and coming from a wicked place. Uh, those works are not genuinely good because there's this idea in Scripture, and Swedenborg certainly picks this up in spades, that there are layers to these things. So every action, has, it's almost like it has the body of it on the outside and then has a soul of it on the inside. And the soul of that is what determines whether that's genuinely good or not. If it's coming from an evil place, doesn't matter how nicely it's packaged, that thing is not a genuinely good work. And so I thought that was important to start out with if we're talking about good works. It's not just talking about, yeah, I gave to the local hospital and yeah, I did this or that. It's talking about those times, I believe, what John symbolizes where you're actually moved by compassion from the Lord, you know, like your heart was moved and that came out in some, some action. You know, that's what, that's what John is about, those actions. And he goes with Peter, who is faith. In other words, some understanding of who the Lord is, who we are, the need to repent and so on, as Peter preaches so strongly. And from James, charity, some kind of warmth and love toward the neighbor, and then John is the result of those two things coming forth in use. It's a silly little detail, but that's where I'm wearing, why I'm wearing a purple shirt for those of you getting the visual tonight, because it's blue and blue and red. You know, blue would be Peter, red would be James, and it comes together in purple in John, coming out on the uh, outside. Um, okay, let's read some stories. Let's go to the Gospel of John, and I want to tell you the, the kind of story that that just would make you scratch your head. If it's just about people, you know, if it's just, a, if we're just trying to learn about an individual named John and he doesn't stand for anything, why would we be told these kind of things? In chapter 13 in John is the Last Supper. Uh, and look at this little detail. Uh, let's pick up at the 21st verse just to get a little bit of the idea of the setting here. When Jesus had said these things, he was troubled in spirit and testified and said, Most assuredly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. Mm. 
Then the disciples looked at one another, perplexed about whom he spoke. And listen to this. Now there was leaning on Jesus' bosom one of his disciples, whom Jesus loved. Okay, now, uh, this is referring to John. Why doesn't it say John? Interesting little factoid. The Gospel of John never uses the word John. Mm. John is never named in the entire Gospel, which is interesting. Uh, John's name does appear in the book of Revelation. Hopefully we'll talk about that in a little bit. Uh, Swedenborg strongly believes that that is the Apostle John. Um, but it's never used here. Instead, John is always referred to in the Gospel of John as the disciple whom Jesus loved. Well, Jesus is love. How could you only have one disciple he loved? Surely he loved all the disciples. Surely he loves everybody equally. It's one of those kind of tilts that like irritates the lower self or something. Like why would it say that there was one disciple that he loved? And why was there one disciple? What was he doing again? He was leaning on Jesus's bosom. Leaning on Jesus's bosom during the Last Supper. He's leaning on Jesus' bosom. He's, he's resting his head on Jesus' chest. The other disciples are, are sitting around, but one of them is very, very close to Jesus. And it's not Peter. It's John. John is very, very close to Jesus. Um, and this is typical. Let's read the next couple of verses. Simon Peter, therefore, motioned to him to ask who it was of whom he spoke. Yes, so Simon Peter's sitting on another part of the, of the room, and he sort of gestures to John to say, hey, find out who, you know, they're all nervous because Jesus just said one of you is going to betray me and they don't know who it is. So now it's one of these little details. Like who does it matter? You know, why could it possibly matter whether Simon Peter asked John or John asked Simon Peter or something? Like why does it matter? But if they have a meaning, it, it matters. You know, it, it's something about us and it starts to matter to us. And he beckons to him that John, why doesn't Simon Peter just ask him? Simon Peter's not afraid to ask Jesus other things at other times, as we saw a couple of weeks ago. You know, why doesn't he just ask him straight up? But instead he asked John to find out and what goes on. Then leaning back on Jesus's breast, he said to him, Lord, who is it? Mm. Jesus answered, it is he to whom I shall give a piece of bread when I have dipped it. And having dipped the bread, he gave it to Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon. That's right. So that's just another one of those little moments where Peter asked, you know, rather than asking the Lord directly, he asked John, who's closest to him. He's right there. So he could sort of whisper in his ear. He's right there leaning on his chest. They would recline to, to dine back then. You know, not, don't picture sitting up in dining room chairs like we have now. You know, they're sort of back on couches. And so he's able to just ask him right there, hey, who's, you know, and, and, and the Lord answers him. He says, the one I'm going to... Now, that's very intimate, isn't it? The Lord says, look, I'll show you which one. I'll hand him... It's the one I hand a piece of bread to... And he, and he gives a piece of bread to Judas. John has his inside track. He finds out this information that they all want to know. Uh, have a look at John chapter 19. So hold that image in your mind, if you would, good friends. Here's another. We're just picking a few little vignettes here tonight. But John 19, here we, it's only a week later, <laughs> uh, but it's taken up all of those six chapters of John. And uh, now we're, Jesus is on the cross. 
Okay, and look at verse 25 to 27 there. Now there stood by the cross of Jesus his mother. His mother. And his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. Okay, it just happens there are three Marys right there by the cross, okay? When Jesus therefore saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing by. Oh, who's the disciple he loved? Oh, that was John. Now, in the other Gospels, all the disciples flee. They all fled. They all left the Lord, right? And then Peter came along at a distance, but he, he denied him three times and everything. But here in the Gospel of John, John is standing right there. He's, he's standing right there. The disciple Jesus loved. And so what does Jesus say? He said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. You know this little tidbit that he never refers to Mary as his mother. The text does, but Jesus' own words never do. Go on. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, that disciple took her to his own home. Now, this is a, a sweet little scene where he kind of has John adopt his mother and the mother. And you know the relationship of mothers to sons back then of like that would be your, that's kind of your retirement package is your, you know, your son is going to take care of you in your old age kind of thing. So he, he has his mother associated with John, like here he, he gets them connected together like that. And both ways, you know, this is your mother, this is your son. Odd little detail. Wait, here's the most epic thing that ever happened in the human race. The crucifixion is going on. Oh, hit the pause button. We want to see this little moment where, you know, it's got to mean more than just like, why would take up space in the Bible if it didn't have a deeper meaning, you know, if it didn't tell us something. You can see even on the surface that it's sort of a sweet interchange. But what does it mean? Why is John there? Why isn't he there in the other Gospels? And there's John. And again, it labels him as the disciple Jesus loved. And he's there. The others have fled, but he's there. And Jesus has him adopt Jesus' own mother, Mary, and, and vice versa. Uh, right at the, you know, toward the end of his life. Look, he gives up the ghost in verse 30, you know. He's only three verses away from dying. As one of the last things he ever does is to get them, get them together. What is that about? Look at John chapter 20. Hold that in your mind too, good friends. And let's just read the first few days. So this is, this is the, you know, after, this is sort of the Easter story now. Starting at the beginning? Yes, why not? Now, on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. Mm. Then she ran and came to Simon Peter and to the other disciple whom Jesus loved. Oh, as if he didn't love Peter. You know, it just keeps coming back to this expression. To Simon Peter and to the other disciple whom Jesus loved. And so she sees first that the stone is taken away, and then she tells these two, are these meaningless trivialities, friend, or do they have some meaning? Okay, go on. Uh, so she came to P Simon Peter and the one Jesus loved and said to them, they have taken away the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. Mm. Peter therefore went out and the other disciple and were going to the tomb. So they both ran together, mm. and the other disciple outran Peter and came to the tomb first. Okay, very important detail. We want you all to know that John was slightly more <laughs> athletic than Peter, or had had a better breakfast, or you know, 
Uh, why would scripture bother to tell us this? It's because it has a meaning. Go on. And he, meaning John, I guess, yes. stooping down and looking in, saw the linen cloths lying there, yet he did not go in. What a weird little detail. So he outran him and he looked, but he didn't go in. And then what? Then Simon Peter came following him. Okay, he was a little behind him. Yep. And went into the tomb. And he saw the linen cloths lying there and the handkerchief that had been around his head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded together in a place by itself. Uh -huh. Then the other disciple who came to the tomb first went in also, and he saw and believed. Yes, that's right. So strange little story. Peter and John go running. John gets there first, stands outside, looks in, but doesn't go in. Peter comes a little later, goes in, sees what's there, and then John goes in, and he sees also. Now, these kind of little details, what it reminds me of, I didn't go find this scripture. It's not too hard to find back in Genesis. But, you know, there's, there's numerous stories, actually, in the Old Testament, aren't there, of twins, uh, like there's the one where the hand comes out and they tie the string around, but then the hand goes back in, then the other one's born first, you know, like who's first born? Isn't it a little bit like that, where you sort of one gets ahead of the other but doesn't go in, so the other one's kind of, they're both kind of first? And Scripture's full of these reversals of, of two brothers, hmm. the youngest of whom become, you know, becomes the heir, you know, Jacob and Esau, who were the, the twins. Um, uh, we did a Bible study about it years ago, um, just all these different, and why the younger brother. It, this seems similar, like why that detail? Why that detail to have one get there first and then, but not go in, and then the other one goes in, and then the first one goes in. Why that detail? If, if it's just meaningless, uh, uh, you know, what's the point? But I'm arguing that there is a meaning there. Uh, let's look at John 21, last chapter in John, and let's read the first seven verses. It's a beautiful story. We're not even reading the whole story, but... After these things, Jesus showed himself again to the disciples at the Sea of Tiberias, and in this way he showed himself. So this is after he was resurrected. Go on. Simon Peter, Thomas, Thomas called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples. Okay, and the sons of Zebedee were James and John. Aha. Uh -huh. Yes. I forgot to go get that passage here, but when they're called, the Lord refers to them as Boanerges, or the sons of thunder, which is another little interesting detail about mm. them. James and John are the sons of thunder, and they're, and they're brothers to each other. So there they are, the sons of Zebedee, and two, and two other disciples. disciples were together. So all those people were together. Yes. Simon Peter said to them, Simon Peter said to them, I am going fishing. I'm going fishing. They said to him, we are going with you also. And it's hard to imagine the sense, I've tried to picture the, the sense of just loss and just like imagine if you'd given up everything to follow the Lord and you followed around day and night for three years on this incredible journey and then unexpectedly, even though he told you many times it was going to happen, he gets killed and all of a sudden you're like, well, what, what do you do now? You know, you gave up everything what do you do now? So finally, after they're sitting around kind of looking at each other, he says, well, I tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to go back to 
fishing. That's what we were doing before. At least we'll do something, you know, so I'm going fishing. And they said, we'll go with you. They went out and immediately got into the boat, and that night they caught nothing. Nothing. That night they caught, I'm going fishing, and then catches nothing all night, okay? But when the morning had now come, Jesus stood on the shore. Mm. Yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Why didn't they know? Curious that they didn't know. Did he look a little different? Was his sphere different? Or was it just so unbelievable that he'd be there, even though they'd seen him before this? Go on. Then Jesus said to them, children, have you any food? Yes. Now, it's just such an innocent little question. But to me, if I've been fishing all night and I've caught nothing, it's sort of a finger in the wound, isn't it? <laughs> Do you have any food? Well, you know, no. Um, and maybe that's how they said it. <laughs> they answered him, no. <laughs> no. <laughs> and he said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. You will find some. What a bold statement. Cast it on the other side of the boat and you'll find some. And they're feeling like, well, we're professional fishers. You're not even in a boat. I don't know who you are. You're out at dawn here. Uh, should I do what you say? And you're telling me definitely I will find some. But for some reason they followed the, the instruction. They must have been pretty desperate, I think. So they cast, and now they were not able to draw it in because of the multitude of fish. Such a wonderful story, isn't it? Therefore, that disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, It is the Lord. So John says to Peter, It's the Lord. And listen to this. Now when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord... And Simon means hearing. That's his name. Isn't it weird that he couldn't see that it was the Lord? John could tell. Simon couldn't see it, but he heard it from John. It's just hearsay. When he heard that it was the Lord, what did he do? He put on his outer garment, for he had removed it, and plunged into the sea. Yes, that's right. So he plunges in another one of these great little stories. John recognized him and said, it's the Lord. Peter goes, it is, and he jumps out of the boat and... and um, uh, very excited and so on. Oh, I see. And, he's, and, he's trying to get to him. Yes, he's trying to get to the Lord, the just rushing oh, okay, to the Lord, okay. I think. Right, right. And, uh, and, and there's a beautiful little story. I plan on reading that next week. We'll get into that in more detail. But I wanted you to see that moment because uh, the fact that, you know, to me, all these little stories have such bizarre little details in them. Who says what to whom? Why does Peter ask John to find out Who's going to betray the Lord? Why does John be the one to tell Peter? Peter's supposedly this lead disciple, right? He's supposed, supposedly the dude with a capital D. And yet he needs to turn to John to find out these things. He doesn't even recognize the Lord. It's John who recognizes the Lord. It's John who's leaning on the Lord's chest at the Last Supper. It's John who gets to the tomb first and sees in. What does that mean? What does that mean? All right. So to me, one way that I'm trying to argue this is just by these, the nature of these details, it begs that it means something. So now let's explore the idea that it may have something to do with our good works. Here's another argument. It's just a little argument. I don't think this is really overwhelming. But it's a very interesting little fact that... Um, 
you know, Scripture generally speaks, it doesn't use the word action much or that sort of thing. It speaks of works or deeds. That's what it calls, calls the things that you do, often for the same Greek word of ergon. And uh, you've heard of an ergonomic chair. That's a chair that's good for when you're, when you're working or something. The, the, uh, uh, so um, work, the word work, occurs only five times in Matthew, in the singular or the plural, only twice in Mark, never in Luke, and 22 times in John. It's just a little tiny thing. I'm not trying to make too much of it. Hmm. But it's interesting that John is talking like four times as much about works as anybody else. How about the word deed? Never occurs in Matthew, never occurs in Mark, twice in Luke, four times in John, twice as, you know. John is talking much more about deeds and works than anybody else is. It's just an interesting point. Another point about the whole John versus Peter controversy that's been raging. Um, we talked uh, a couple of weeks ago about the fact that John is referred to by these three different names, and he out of uh, 359 mentions of the disciples, uh, fully 210 of them are just about Peter. He gets 58% of the mentions and sort of buries all the rest of the, of the 12. But if you look through the lens of how much they wrote, now, first of all, to accept this argument, you have to accept the point, which I know for some people might be stretching it, uh, that the Gospel John was written by the Apostle John uh, that the epistles of John were written by the Apostle John and that the book of Revelation was written by the Apostle John. Uh, Swedenborg certainly believes that with all his heart and thinks it's very important that that is the case, and he argues why he believes that. Uh, on Greek linguistic style and things like that, the book of Revelation is quite different than the Gospel of John and, and so on, so people have questioned this. I think it's obvious that the disciples of these apostles were involved in the writing of these things. At the end of John, it says uh, right here in John 21, 25, you know, this is the disciple which testifies of these things in verse 24, and we know that his testimony is true. John is in the third person here. You know, they're saying this is the testimony, but we're, we, we believe what he said. Um, uh, to Peter in the New Testament, in the Protestant New Testament, are attributed 166 verses. First and Second Peter, 166 verses by the hand of Peter. James, 108 verses. John, 1,416. He buries the competition. You know, there's way, way more John. So you may hear in these Gospels about Peter a whole lot. He's named all the time. The stories are all about him. But the primary person who's telling you of these three apostles, John is the most vocal of these. He, he writes the most. We have the most from him. And I thought it'd be fun to just look a little bit at the kind of teachings. Let's go to John chapter 3. I just selected out some teachings here, and I want to look at some teachings from the epistles, teachings from Revelation to think about what, what, what we're being taught by John. What does John know? Uh, 3, verses 19 to 21. This is the story of Nicodemus, which is not in the other Gospels. Uh, 
And he's talking about the need to believe. 3.16 is that famous verse about God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Uh, let's just read down from there. You want to pick up at verse 17? Okay. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. Yes. Now this sounds like it's all about believing. Okay. He who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already. Okay, that sounds like faith is the most important thing. Because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And this is the condemnation. Okay, here, so here is exactly what the condemnation is. Okay? That the light has come into the world. Meaning Jesus. And men loved darkness rather than light, because their deeds were evil. Oh, Wait a minute, a conversation that started very pleasantly about faith up there has suddenly become about love and deeds. Interesting. So it was saying you need to believe in the Lord, and that's how we get eternal life and so on. And yet here it says this is the condemnation that light came into the world, and how do people react? Well, if their heart was in the wrong place, what did we read earlier in Matthew? You know, when, out of the abundance of the heart, uh, that's where these deeds come from. Men love darkness rather than light. And why did they do that? It's because their deeds were evil. Their deeds affected the state of their heart, which affected their ability to believe. Am I wrong about that? It seems like the logic in this passage. Mm -hmm. You did evil. That made you love the darkness. And that made you unable to believe. Because it says this is the condemnation. It says if you believe, you're not condemned. But if you don't believe, you're already condemned. Okay, go on. Tell me a little more about that. For everyone practicing evil hates the light. There's practicing, right? That's what you do. That's your behavior. Wow. Everyone who practices evil hates the light. Wow. So how it couldn't just be about faith then. It's got to be about the way that we live our lives. Because if we're practicing evil, then we hate the light. Go on. And does not come to the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. Well, that's kind of a logic that's sort of inescapable there, isn't it? The, don't, when we do bad things, don't we sort of hide? Or I, I, I remember um, a certain offspring of mine who come into the room and say, Dad, you don't need to go in the living room right now. You know? <laughs> <laughs> Something's going on. Uh, verse 21. But he who does the truth comes to the light. Wow, what a powerful statement. He that does the truth, doing the truth. What an amazing statement. So if you do the truth, then that makes you warm to the light and you come to the light. Why? That his deeds may be clearly seen and that they have been done in God. Yes, your deeds were done in God. In other words, there was something of the Lord that motivated you to do that. As we were talking about earlier, you have that compassion or something of the Lord in you made you want to do that thing that you're doing because you practice the truth. You've been through repentance and so on. Love that teaching. Have a look at John 5, verse 18. These are just select little teachings. 18. Therefore the Jews sought all the more to kill him because he not only broke the Sabbath, but also said that God was his father making himself equal with God. Why I have you read this verse is because John teaches in a, in a way to my eye more clearly 
the unity of Jesus and God. You know, it says very clearly that he made himself equal with God, right? And that's what upset them. So this is the teaching of John. Uh, look at John chapter 7, verse 17. This is Jesus speaking. If anyone wills to do his will, meaning God's will. Yes, that's right. And so if you will, what an interesting phrase, huh? If you will to do the Lord's will. Mm -hmm. He shall know concerning the doctrine, whether it is from God or whether I speak on my own authority. Awesome. Just what an amazing little verse uh, that if you have that willingness to do the Lord's will, that's how you can tell the doctrine. It's not about, you know, Peter might mean faith and it might be, oh, well, you need to understand it. You need to read and analyze and something like that. No, this is saying if you have a willingness to do it, then you'll know what the good teaching is. Then you'll know and you'll know Jesus' relationship to God. You'll know whether what Jesus was doing was just a human being working on his own or was he coming from God. John has this teaching differently than the other Gospels, slightly. And how about chapter 8? Chapter 8, verse 16. And yet, if I do judge, my judgment is true. For I am not alone, but I am with the Father who sent me. I am with the Father. Okay? That's sort of refrain in John. And how about 19? Then they said to him, Where is your Father? Jesus answered, You know neither me nor my Father. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. See, it's hinting at the unity of Jesus with the Father. This is a teaching of John. Um, and how about verses 28 to 29 down below there? Then Jesus said to them, When you lift up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am He, and that I do nothing of myself. Listen, that statement about doing. Jesus said, I do nothing. You know, Jesus is doing these miracles, doing amazing things, and yet He says, I do nothing of myself. This doesn't come from me. My doing is from the Father. Go on. But as my Father taught me, I speak these things. And he who sent me is with me. With me. There it is again. He's with me. The Father has not left me alone, for I always do those things that please him. Always doing. I'm pairing this, you can see, with this idea that John has to do with good works, that he, that he means those good works. John is certainly talking about good works in a different way here. Have a look at chapter 10. Just a few more of these. Verses 37 and 38. If I do not do the works of my Father, do not believe me. But if I do, though you do not believe me, believe the works. Wow, what a statement. Okay, you may not buy what I'm saying, but believe what I'm doing. You know, believe the works. Like the works will show you. That's a work-based teaching, is it not? And go on. That you may know and believe that the Father is in me and I in him. Yeah. The works will tell you the relationship of the Father and Son, the divine love and the divine truth in Jesus, that they're one. One is in the other and the other is in the first. Okay, good. Oh, let's back up. I should have caught this earlier. Uh, look at verse 25. It just says the same kind of thing. Jesus answered them, I told you and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name, they bear witness of me. Yes, and look over at verse 32. 
Jesus answered them, Many good works I have shown you from my Father. For which of those works do you stone me? And look at their answer. The Jews answered him, saying, For a good work we do not stone you, but for blasphemy, and because you, being a man, make yourself God. They got it. They understood what he was doing. They weren't confused about it. They said, You're making yourself God. It's not about the good work. It's about the blasphemy. That's the thing we have a problem with. And uh, so I'm saying that John teaches that unity. And look at uh, John 12, uh, verse 44 and following. Let's read a few verse, down to the end of the chapter, I guess. Okay. Then Jesus cried out and said, He who believes in me believes not in me, but in him who sent me. Mm. And he who sees me sees him who sent me. That's quite mind-boggling. He's been saying stuff like with and I'm in him and he's in me and all this. But now he's saying, if you see me, you've seen, you know, mm-hmm. how clear is that? Is that two? Are there two there? There's only one, right? Go on. I have come as a light into the world that whoever believes in me should not abide in darkness. And if anyone hears my words and does not believe, I do not judge him. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. Mm, so powerful. Mm-hmm. Listen to the love. He who rejects me and does not receive my words has that which judges him. Mm. The word that I have spoken will judge him in the last day. For I have not spoken on my own authority. Yes, in the old King James, of myself. I have not spoken of myself, you know, on my own authority. Like, this didn't come from me. I'm not just representing my own interests here. You know, I'm giving you what the Father told me to say. But the Father who sent me gave me a command, what I should say and what I should speak. Mm. And I know that his commandment is everlasting life. Mm. Therefore, whatever I speak, just as the Father has told me, so I speak. So there's this intimate relationship between the Father and Jesus, and the Father is the source of all these things. And if you've seen Jesus, you've seen the Father because he's the embodiment of that. Good. And how about 14? You know it's coming, good friends. Uh, Look at verse 7 and following there. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. And from now on, you know him and have seen him. You have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is sufficient for us. Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long, and yet you have not known me, Philip? And listen to that, me. He just said the Father, and he said me, right? He is the Father. Go on. He who has seen me has seen the Father. So how can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father in me? The words that I speak to you, I do not speak on my own authority. There it is again. But the Father who dwells in me does the works. He does the works. He's the one doing the works. John is all about works. This teaching is about works. It's about the unity of God. It's about love and so on. Two more verses. Let's do it. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father in me, or else believe me for the sake of the works themselves. That's what he said before, didn't he? The works. Just believe me on the basis of the works. Go on. Most assuredly, I say to you. Here's a mind blower. He who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also. Mm. And greater works than these he will do because I go to my Father. Mm. So is that about us doing works? That's, that's about us doing works 
because the Lord is going to the Father and then he's going to be in us the same way that the Father was in him. Uh, it'll be this potent sort of trio when, when these three things come together in that way. So that's a little sample of teaching from John. Now, uh, head on back almost to the book of Revelation. Shortly before the book of Revelation, all the way to the right in your Bible, you'll get to the epistles of John. I just want to look at 1 John. There's so much wonderful stuff in here, but I just want to look at 1 John chapter 4, uh, verse 8, which says something that is never quite stated in quite these terms anywhere else in the Bible except one other place. Chapter 4, verse 8? Yes. He who does not love does not know God. For God is love. God is love. That's the teaching of John. The only other place in the whole of Scripture where it says that is down in verse 16, just below there. And we have known and believed the love that God has for us. God is love, and he who abides in love abides in God and God in him. Mm, beautiful. Beautiful teaching. A little sample of the teaching of John. So John teaches a lot about works. He teaches about love. He teaches about the unity of the Father and the Son. And let's look at the book of Revelation. If you just turn to the right, we'll go to Revelation chapter 1. And let's read the first verse there in the first chapter. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants things which must shortly take place. And he sent and signified it by his angel to his servant John. To his servant John, not to his servant Peter. Peter got a message too, but the revelation was given to John. That's who was able to hear this message. And then you see in the verse 4 there, John to the seven churches. Um, and uh, in verse 9, what is he saying? I, John, both your brother and companion in the tribulation and kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ, was on the island that is called Patmos for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. Okay, and look at Revelation 21 at the other end of the book, uh, getting right down to the end of the Bible here. Uh, let's read the first two verses of 21. They're so powerful. Now I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. Also, there was no more sea. Then I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Isn't it interesting that the whole gospel of John never uses the name John, but here when he's announcing the holy city, his name is right. It's not just I saw. It says, I, John, saw the holy city. And don't we see something similar in 22 verse 8? Now I, John, saw and heard these things. Yes, that's right. John saw and heard these things. Saw and heard. Interesting. Hearing is Simon Peter, the faith. So part of what I'm thinking is that Peter is like the head in a sense. James is like the heart and John is like the hands and the feet, uh, you know, in terms of doing and action and so on. Uh, this is one way to think about it. Um, all right, let's, let's talk a little bit about, about these stories. What does this mean? Why is one disciple, and it's not Peter, why is one disciple called the disciple the Lord loves? Why is one disciple leaning on the Lord's chest at the Last Supper 
and talking to them in kind of an intimate way, finding out where the betrayal is going to come from. Why is one the first one to get to the tomb? Why is the one to recognize Jesus when he's on the shore? And what does that mean? And what does that have to tell us about good works? Well, one thought that came to me as I've been reflecting on this, uh, think about that image of John leading, leaning on the Lord's chest. If you accept, I can't prove it to you, but if you accept the idea that John means something about good works, what this says to me is that the Lord loves good works more than he loves faith, more than he loves charity. His favorite thing of all is when you actually do something for someone else. That's his favorite he may be sitting there and Peter's across the room and Peter's wondering with his cogitative mind, just wondering, hmm, I wonder who's going to betray him. This is fascinating. I don't know how I might find that out. Who's going to be able to find that out? Well, he's far enough away. He can't even speak to the Lord. He won't speak to the Lord directly for whatever reason. He's farther away. There's a gap between the Lord and faith. Faith is reasoning and it wonders, hmm, I wonder who Jesus is. And sometimes he gets it right. He says, oh, you're the... Christ, the son of the living God, and sometimes he gets it wrong and says you shouldn't go through the crucifixion. Lord has to call him Satan and so on. Uh, Peter can be wrong. He, he's sort of thinking about it and, and, and he doesn't always get it right. Is there any distance between the Lord and John? There is none whatsoever. His head is lying on his chest. The Lord is right there in good works. When we're doing good works, we are never closer to the Lord than when we are doing that. If you're ever suffering, if you're going through depression or some difficult time or whatever, do something. We all know it, right? You do something because it pulls the Lord in close because the Lord is closer to John than any of the other disciples. The Lord lives in those good works. So if we can get ourselves moving and do something for somebody, bang, the Lord is there. You know, when you interact with other people and they're like angels, it's because they're doing something. You know, they're doing something for you and you see them in their glory. You know, when people are just unwinding or entertaining themselves or fretting about things or tossing at night or whatever it is, you know, maybe there's not, the Lord is always present, but he's present in an intimate way. There's no gap between him and that good work. There's no distance at all. He's lying there right on the Lord's love, right, right on his chest. His whole head is just right there. And if he wants to communicate with the Lord, he only has to just tip his head a little bit. He can whisper right in his ear, you know. And that's because the Lord loves good works. That's what it's all about. He's not looking for a whole group of people to have a fascinating debate about how many angels can, you know, dance on the head of a pin or whatever. That's fabulous. Knock yourselves out. Yeah, but he's not never as close to that. It's an important piece and it's an essential to salvation, but not by itself, not by itself, not without John. If you don't have that doing, what did he say? If you're, if you're not practicing that, you know, everyone who does evil hates the light and doesn't want to come near it because the Lord is closer. I'll, I'll say something common to it, which is kind of scary, but... Um, Hell is never closer than when, we're, than when we're doing our evil. You know, it may be hanging out there while we're contemplating it or thinking about it or desiring it. Or it's never as close as when you're doing it. And the Lord is never as close as when you're doing good. And those works come out of the abundance of the heart. That's where they come from. You know, our heart 
comes forth into those deeds. And the Lord is so close in there. You're right on the Lord's chest when, you, when you're doing those things. And we, ha we have various different states, and Peter and James are also important. I think this is why John is able to recognize the Lord. There's something, isn't there? Like, like when, you're, when you're doing things, uh, the, the Lord becomes close. Uh, something I, I want to say about this is that um, it's maybe sort of a static image of John leaning on the Lord's chest, but it was striking me today that as we work, as we do things, I would even argue that we get closer and closer and closer and closer and closer and closer to the Lord without end, eternally. Like, don't you get good at something eventually? You know what I mean? You do it and you do it and you do it and you do it and you start to figure out a little bit how to do it, how to do it more efficiently, how to do it better, how to do it more effectively. Don't you sort of learn as you go and you grow into it? And I've been thinking about that for years as just like a sort of a silly way to think about it maybe, but I thought... Uh, like sometimes when I'm translating, you know, I'll go, if I haven't been translating for a while, I'll go back to translating. It's like it takes three weeks for the translation spirits to show up. You know, I have no idea what these Latin words are or how to do what I'm doing. You know, I'm just like lost. And then eventually the translation spirits go, oh, okay, you know, and then they come back and then I start to figure out what it means. Well, it suddenly struck me today. That's not, I mean, spirits may be involved. That's the Lord. The Lord is in that work, right? And the Lord comes into that work. And the longer you do that work, the more the Lord is there. The Lord, the translator, is there helping you out. Then you shift into a different kind of work, and, and it takes a while, you know? But it's a great, it's a great piece of advice to, to hang in there. First of all, if you're in a difficult state, to do something. And then if you're doing things, keep doing them. Because when you start is when hell wants to discourage you. Like, you're no good at this, you know? Um, uh, and they want to get, get you off of it as soon as they can. I think to offset this, weird little thought, but I think beginner's luck is also the Lord being in you. You know, I have a friend, who, the first time they ever went to a golf course, they hit a hole in one. And, and, you know, and then it's like, not again for years, right? You know, you'll never do that again. But I think the Lord is able to be there in that doing before you really know what you're doing. You know, I think beginner's luck has to do with the Lord being in there right at the beginning to keep you from being discouraged by hell from, from continuing. And, um, but the more that we go, it's giving me sort of a vision of, of the eternal life that the Lord just comes more and more into your doing. John and the Lord just get closer and closer and closer and closer. You know, you only have this one static image in the New Testament. It's not static because he's talking to him and so on, but, but it doesn't represent how much the Lord comes into our doing and how people who have been doing things, doesn't matter what it is, people who have been doing things for years and decades, they just, you know, it's just oozing out of their pores, you know. The Lord gets so close into that doing, so amazing. To me, I don't know, you know, I, I, I'm more of a fan of doctors and nurses and hospitals than most people I know, uh, but you really sometimes feel the hand of the Lord, you know, when someone's caring for you like that and you're in a vulnerable state or something, just beautiful. Uh, they're, they're, they're like the Lord, right? You know, they're, they're doing is the Lord. And they may have whatever problems in their personal life or when they go home or whatever it is, but the Lord is in that doing. That's why he's the disciple the Lord loves. He's not interested in a world with nothing but faith in it if you never do it because you're missing the whole point. You never get to the purple if you've got nothing but the love, even though the love is great. You, I love my neighbor. I haven't done a thing for them. 
you know. But I do feel this generic kind of warm swell sometimes, and I drift off to sleep. Uh, no, it's supposed to be about doing. And don't you find that when you do, it siphons in more love, you know? It works the other way around. If you can get yourself to do it the first time, that's, that's how all that love comes, doesn't it? You, you practice it and you practice it. You know, uh, people used to say about like uh, cleaning your room, you know, do it till, till, till you love it. You know, that's how long you should do it. Uh, these, these things, you, like who, who loves, like little kids love doing things and they, they race around and they do things. But generally, by the time you're a teenager, you, you, often the activities you're called on to do in life don't bring much pleasure. They certainly didn't to me. And, uh, you know, uh, but after you do them for a while, you start to love them and, and you remember when you did them when you were younger and so on. You know, it's a beautiful thing. The Lord loves those good works. That's the whole point. He's not interested in a world of faith. He's not interested in a church of faith. Nothing but faith. Not interested in it. We'll find out some more about that next time. He's interested in the love. The love is what's able to outrace to the tomb. It's the first one to get there, to understand what the Lord did. If you look at it from that point of view of the good works, you can see who the Lord was. John gets to that tomb first, and he's able to see. When they're out on the beach, it's just, and it's not rocket science. Someone standing on the beach told you fish on the other side that you definitely would catch fish, and you did, a super abundance, even though you've been working all night and caught nothing. But John is the one because he's got this intimacy with the Lord that Peter knows nothing about. He's got this intimacy with the Lord. He's close with the Lord. Um, let's see, what else, what else? Yeah, so I, I think that, that tells you some of those, covers some of those stories anyway of what's going on. Oh, why does Mary adopt John and John adopts Mary? Because the most, Mary corresponds to the church, the mother of Jesus corresponds to the church, just religion everywhere. And religion is religion because it adopts John. Peter actually isn't even in the, in, in the picture. But the last thing Jesus does before he dies is to get John and Mary together. That was the whole point. The whole point was to get John and Mary together, to get the church to adopt good works and to get good works to adopt the church, you know, to, to get those two things together. That was the whole point. Peter's not there. James is not there. None of the other disciples are even there. That's all you need. The, the good works have everything in it. It has all the rest in it. Um, so um, I would sum up by saying that the Lord is never closer than when we're doing good works. And this helps me understand why John has this kind of special favored status. And isn't it interesting that he's the one, he's the one, he, he wrote so much. He's the one who understood that the Lord was God himself, that the Father and the Son were one. He articulates that in a way that none of the other gospels quite get to. I'm not, I'm not knocking them, but I'm just saying John had a very special vision and we'll talk next time some more, I hope, God willing, about the fact that it's John who sees the new church. It's John who sees Christianity version 2.0 coming, descending from God out of heaven. It's not Peter. Peter's not the one who sees that. John is the one who sees that. Uh, John is the one who sees what the new church is going to be all about. And this new church, this Christianity version 2.0, is not going to be the church of Peter. 1.0 was the church of Peter, for sure. 
but 2.0 is going to be the Church of John. That's what we're going to talk about next time. That's, that's, what, that's, what John, that's why John was the one. That's why Swedenborg felt it was so important to identify the writer of the book of Revelation with the Apostle John because it's meaningful. And he names himself, and I, John, saw this because John is like the new church. He sees it descending because he's got the same spirit that the new church has. It's all about the doing. That's what it's about. It's, about, it's not, not about faith, and it's not, not about charity, but it's about those things working together in good works. And if you don't have the good works, you're missing that whole thing because the Lord really wants, uh, he, he wants that celebration. He wants to be in us when we're, when we're benefiting other people and we just don't have that intimacy. It's not, it's not as good if the Lord is not in us in that way when we're doing that good. So John is simply the uh, most beloved and the closest disciple because of his meaning because his meaning is good works. Thank you, good friends. Let's uh, close with a prayer. Lord Jesus Christ, you are the word made flesh. We thank you for the mysteries of your word, the baffling things that you have said. Thank you for giving us a little light into the meaning of your apostle John, why he figured in those stories in that way. Thank you for teaching us, Lord, what we can do, what we can do when we're suffering, what we can do for others, knowing that you are most alive in the good works that we do. And our works are at their best when we do them from your love for the salvation of the whole human race. Our Father who art in the heavens, Hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done, as in heaven so upon the earth. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we also forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever. Amen. Let's keep on doing good works. <laughs>